0: Peace be with you, church. We're continuing in our series in Galatians. There's a first time for everything they say this morning when when I looked at the text, I started to write things out, I realized that I'm going to have to make two sermons out of this. So your bulletin, Fruit of the Spirit, we're not going to be focusing in on Fruit of the Spirit today, we're actually going to be focusing in on the works of the flesh, verses 19 through 21. So your bulletin's still good if you want to keep it for next week, but not this week. Um, But as we begin our time, I want to set our minds in motion with this question. What does God look like? The scriptures make it clear that God is spirit and no one has ever seen God. So I ask this question because human beings were created in the image of God, but because of sin, our sin against our creator, that image was marred and we thus live lives that do not reflect that image. Lives of selfishness and wickedness, lives of unrighteousness. If we are made in the image of God and we look in the mirror, is that what God looks like? The scriptures tell us in John chapter 1 that God became flesh, Jesus. Colossians 1, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, meaning Jesus has shown us the Father. We can see God when we look at Jesus But as Christians, people who have repented of our sins and put our faith in in the Son of God and Jesus, who've who've been sealed by the Holy Spirit and, and forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness, we're now called to walk in God's ways, to be like God, holy as He is holy. But the Apostle John, in his first letter, 1 John, said that he had seen Jesus with his eyes. He touched Him with His hands. But after His resurrection, Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven, Acts chapter 1. And so we cannot see Him or touch Him. So if Jesus is the image of the invisible God, but Jesus is in heaven, how do we know what Jesus looks like that we can ensure that we are increasingly looking like Him? That's a great question. One that I believe our text this morning will answer, among other things. Looking like God is a matter of reflecting God's character. We look more and more like Him and less and less like our sin. But how? Let's read our text this morning, 19 through 21 of Galatians chapter 5. Verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry sorcery enmity strife jealousy fits of anger rivalries dissensions divisions envy drunkenness orgies and things like these i warn you as i warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of god this is the word of the lord thanks be to god Our main point that I think we ought to consider from this text is this. And I think it's going to be the same next week unless I tweak it, but here it is. The Holy Spirit produces God's character in God's children. And God's children will inherit God's kingdom. The Holy Spirit produces God's character in God's children. And God's children will inherit God's kingdom. And we're going to do this in two points this morning. The works of the flesh and the warning about God's kingdom. So first, longest point this morning, the works of the flesh. We're actually going to walk through these together. But first, three reminders from last week. First, remember last week, I proposed that the point of this text is not to show us this internal battle that Christians face between sin and the Spirit. Now we do face temptations to sin, we fight sin, but that's not what this text is about. The purpose of this text is to show how utterly opposed they are to one another. To ensure to the believer that if they are walking by the Spirit, they don't need the law. Because they are not going to fulfill the desire of the flesh. Because those desires are here, Spirit's desires are here, and they go in the opposite direction. So for our purposes this week, we can carry that into verse 19, what we just read. I think Paul is saying, look at this. This is what utter opposition looks like. This is what the works of the flesh look like. Then then what we'll see next week is what the fruit of the Spirit looks like in opposition to this. Do you see how opposed they are to one another, Paul is saying? Completely contrary to one another. The Christian who is sealed by the Holy Spirit, who walks by the Holy Spirit does not need the law because their life is not characterized by all this flesh, but by fruit. So when we dive into this list, that's, that's the first thought. These works in Paul's mind are not works that Christians do. These are works at best that characterize our pre-Christian lives, but they have no place whatsoever in the life of a spirit-filled Christian now. Second thing to remember, in connection with last week, this list, these works of the flesh are the, quote, things you want to do, from verse 17. What's the argument of the Judaizers? They say this, without the law, these people are gonna go off the deep end into lawless living. They're gonna do all this stuff. They're gonna do whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want. The law will stop that, give them the law. But Paul says, nope, because the law doesn't have power to stop it. The Spirit has the power, and the Spirit will keep you from doing whatever you want, aka this list. Third thing, when Paul makes this list, he doesn't do so, hear me, with our Western individualistic lens on. It's not first about the individual believer, it's first about the church the community of believers. These things happening in the church. He's writing to the body of Christ in community. Yes, and an individual is included within that community as a member of that body. But in saying that these things, which are discernible in the community, are not characteristic of the spirit-filled Christian. They're characteristic of a pre-spirit at best, no spirit at worst, kind of living. And the reason I keep saying spirit-filled Christian is cuz I'm trying to make a distinction. There's a lot of people who say that they're Christians, but just cuz they say they're Christians doesn't mean they actually are. You can see the evidence of a Christian, whether or not they're saved, in the fruit that they bear, which is from the spirit, which is why I'm making a distinction, spirit-filled Christian, a believer. These people that he's mentioning that he's going to refer to, they're all in the gathering. And just like Jesus said, you can tell if the tree is alive by the fruit that it bears. And Paul here gives us a helpful, discernible category for what it just might look like in the gathering if somebody is actively fulfilling the desire of the flesh and they're not walking by the Spirit. So with all that in the background, let's take the first step as we walk through this text. Verse 19 says this, now the works of the flesh are evident. Now I want to make it clear that This does not necessarily mean that these things are always visible. They're discernible, they're perceivable, but you can't always see them. And Jesus makes this point in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, when he says to the the people listening, you've heard it said that you shall not murder. But then he digs in to the heart. You can't see the heart. And he says, if you are angry with your brother, you're liable for judgment. Unless it's resolved, unless you repent. Later he says the same thing about, about lust: You shall not commit adultery, but in the heart, if you look at someone with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery in your heart. People on the outside can't see that, but you are still guilty of sin and liable for the judgment of God, unless you repent. So I don't think Paul is saying that you're always going to see it. He's saying that it's evident. He's not saying you're always going to see these things. What he is saying is that it's obvious when a person is living in the flesh because they do these kinds of works. These are the things that characterize their lives. It's obvious they're doing the work of the flesh. They're fulfilling the desire of the flesh. And I think that's an important thing to note this morning. And as we push forward, ask yourself, do these things characterize my life? What does my life look like? not just on the outside where people can see it, but on the inside in the heart where God sees. The answer to that question may just determine where you are in your relationship with Jesus and what step it is that you need to take with him. But maybe you don't know him this morning. You know that. That first step, friend, I'm letting let you know up front, is to come to him in repentance and faith. Because Jesus alone can cleanse your life from these works. And he's ready and he's glad to do that. And hear me when I say this. Don't try and clean yourself up before you come to Jesus because it never worked before. It's not going to work now. Just come to Jesus and let him clean you up. Because he is ready and able to do so. But maybe you're here this morning and you say, I do know Jesus. But your life looks no different than it was before you made that profession of faith. Your life actually looks a lot like this that we're going to see. You see a lot of this in your life. Friend, don't live a lie. Don't say one thing and do another thing. Don't claim Jesus and then defame his name by living like the ways we will see. Come to Jesus. The same offer for life, for freedom, it's for you too. But maybe you do know him. You're here. You are a spirit-filled Christian. You want to follow Jesus. You see the evidence of him working in your life. But you've seen, sorry, you've been blind to some of these areas in your life. Now hear me, no one is sinless, okay? Even after coming to Jesus, no one is perfect. They will never be perfect on this side of heaven, yet we are still called to holiness. And what I want you to see this morning is the grace of God. That God, even in a text like this, would show you that darkness inside so that his light can take its place. Don't be afraid of the light, Christian. Hebrews 12 says that the Lord disciplines his children. And those who are without discipline, the text says, are illegitimate children. That's not where we want to be. We want to be children of God. And that means discipline from the hand of God is good. It's for our good. The text says that we might share in his holiness, Hebrews 12 again. So we need to be trained by his discipline because his discipline, when we're trained by it, yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So my encouragement to you today, Saint, is let the Father prune you today. As you continue to walk by the Spirit today, let him prune you in the ways that he wants because it's his grace for you. Now, there are four categories that we can make as we walk through this list. One commentator laid it out this way. I think that it's helpful, so I want to share that with you, and we're going to frame our time like that, okay? We're going to walk through this list, but I don't want to lose in your mind the utter opposition that we're going to see between the flesh and the spirit in this text and next week. So as we go, we're going to to look at the flesh on the one hand, And believe it or not, I actually want to show you some things. We're going to actually see in this text the fruit of the Spirit, on the other hand, in utter opposition, in the same verse. So my hope is that you and I will actually see God's character in this list of vices on full display, even with the backdrop of darkness and sin that we're going to see. So stick with me as we walk through, okay? The first category of works of the flesh that we see is illicit sex. Illicit means unlawful or disapproved. Now we see that in the first three. It says sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. Sexual immorality is a catch-all term for all forms of sexual activity that deviate from God's created design, that deviate from God's purposes and God's order in creation this is to say that any sexual activity outside of monogamous heterosexual marriage between one man and one woman is sexual morality the scriptures make it clear from genesis 2 that this is god's design this is god's desire this is god's purposes for sex that it would be in a heterosexual marriage between a man and a woman the scriptures in this category of immorality would include things like premarital sexual relations, homosexuality, bestiality, incest, prostitution. The list can just go on and on and on. The wickedness of man is without measure. You can put any of those things in the category, but as I've said before, if you know the right thing, then you know what the wrong things are. All are against God's design. All of them, in that case, are to be rejected as immoral. These are works of the flesh. One author writes this. He says, sexuality is one of God's good gifts and the source of, such, of much human happiness. At the same time, once expressed outside its intended context of marital fidelity, it can become one of the most destructive forces in human existence. Does, it, does anyone see that in the world today? He also says this earlier. The attempt to enjoy sexual happiness without holiness is the root of all sexual deviance. Does anyone ever see anything like this? If it was not clear enough for Paul, Paul broadens it out actually even further with the next vice. He says impurity. And this is the pursuit of unclean things, not just physically unclean things, but impure things, things that would make our physical body unclean in a kind of way, absolutely, but deeper, they, they, they would make us sick in our minds, impure in our minds and in our hearts. It would make us heart and mind sick, so to speak. They taint the ways that we think. They taint our reason. They stain the way that we perceive the world, that we perceive the human body as God created it. It stains the way we perceive God's created order, God's design specifically for sexual purity in the confines of marriage. If your mind is filled with impurity, you start seeing people as objects to be exploited rather than image bearers to be loved. Then Paul brings in sensuality. This English translation is a sort of catch-all itself uh, with different nuances of this word. The nuances of this word would mean lewdness. That's inappropriate sexual behavior. Or wantonness. That's provocative behavior. This kind of behavior has no place in a spirit-filled Christian life. Paul's word acknowledges the reality that you can actually perceive the difference, the opposition between how someone carries themselves if they're doing the works of the flesh or walking by the spirit. This is a, a thing we could say, an application we could make. How you physically walk matters to God. What you wear matters to God. The way you speak matters And how you say it, the type of words that you use with other people, matters to God. Paul's point here then is that you should be able to see the difference in how a spirit-filled Christian carries themselves as opposed to someone who does the works of the flesh. Is this not obvious, even in corporate America, where people will do any and everything to gain the advantage over someone else, even at the expense of their own body? at the expense of using their own appearance, using body language or speech to get the upper hand or to get the promotion or get on somebody's good side, this is works of the flesh. This is not a spirit-filled life to be lived. And again, we can be so ignorant to the pervasiveness of sin, so we've got to be careful when we see things like this that it's not just stopping at the outside. We need to look inside. On the outside, sure, ask yourself what is your goal in your behavior? Who are you trying to please by how you dress or how you speak or how you act? Provocation and inappropriate behavior have no place in the spirit-filled Christian. So ask, are you trying to please people in such a way that, that utilizes the gift of appearance that God has given you or the speech he's put on your tongue as provocative or, or inappropriate in ways that are unnecessary to gain attention? Or are you seeking to please God in every interaction. And even in the way that you dress, even in the way that you walk, to please God. Spirit filled Christians are mindful of the words that come out of their mouth and how they come out of their mouth. They're mindful of their actions and how their actions come across, how we carry ourselves, because we intentionally are seeking to honor God, love God, and love our neighbor as ourselves, even with something. So seemingly mundane like how we dress or how we act. This is something that we have to be mindful of because we live in a culture. In fact, we live in a world, Romans 2 world, that thinks in complete opposition of the character of God, which we see in this text as fidelity. Fidelity. as as decency, as appropriateness, as goodness. We see God in opposition to these things, but we see the opposition of the world very clearly on display because we live in a world that propagates, for example, the pursuit of, of sexual happiness. We could call it pleasure, but at the cost of holiness. There is no holiness in the way that they pursue it. They reject God's good design in every way possible, even to the point of today where we're calling boys, girls, and girls boys. And they're not receiving God's design as good and therefore not enjoying God's design as he's created it to flourish and function. And this is so commonplace in our culture that the church, in a lot of ways, has even almost become accustomed to seeing it, hearing it, living in it, in the midst of it, maybe even learning about it from teachers and and people in the community, learning about immorality in all its forms, But even in the midst of all this, as the church, we still are called to live lives that are set apart, holy, as unto the Lord. If you aren't a Christian, recognize that that God's design for sex is so much more fulfilling, so much more satisfying. And the more you live in deviance from his design, you're only just destroying yourself. You're destroying your own body. You're genuinely ruining your body that God gave you, the body he designed to function in a specific way for his glory and for your good, your flourishing. You're actually ruining it. If you're a Christian, there's a lot we could say about our interactions with culture on this, but for our purposes today, we're seeing the opposition between flesh and fruit. It looks different. Remember, Jesus said these kinds of things don't just happen on the outside. They happen on the inside. So don't be the person that claims Jesus. You might know some like this, who, who shriveled. Think about this. The people who claim Christ, who shrivel in disgust at the horror of human trafficking or the pandemic of pornography in our country, while at the same time they entertain their own lustful, immoral fantasies with movies and shows no spirit-filled Christian should ever be able to have the eyes to watch or fill their ears with music that no spirit-filled Christian should ever have ears to listen to or they make comments or jokes or say crude innuendos out of their mouth that no spirit-filled, filled christian should ever have the mouth to say it should taste like gall and bitterness if those kinds of things come out of our mouth or in our hands this is saying you walk by the spirit you should do this but instead you're fulfilling the desire of the flesh you claim to walk by the spirit but your life says otherwise we ought to be people who walk in holiness And the encouragement is it's the Spirit who produces that holiness in us. The Spirit of God produces the character of God in us as we abide and as we trust, which which would lead us in the opposite direction toward sexual morality, toward fidelity. It is good and right to be faithful to your husband. It's good and right to be faithful to your wife. To grow in unity, pursue intimacy together alone. It is good and right. It's a gift from God to love your spouse deeply and wholeheartedly. This is God's good design for you so that your marriage can flourish in the way that he's created it. It is good and right to pursue purity. Purity of body, purity of mind, purity of heart. Which means you've got to be careful what you're filling your minds with. Are we filling our minds with impurities or watching all the latest news, uh, the blogs or watching news and, and watching the commercials? Are we filling our mind with impurity or purity? Are we thinking on things like Philippians says that are pure, that are lovely? It is good and right to act with decency. Not provocatively. It's good and right to be respectable in how you carry yourself and how you dress and how you speak and how you walk and how you carry yourself around other people. How you present yourself to people because your life should look really different than a person who's living in the flesh. So don't buy the lie that you have to exploit even your own appearance to gain something in this world. What is it to gain the whole world? That job. That promotion. That promotion. That lifestyle, if you've got to ruin your body and lose your Lord in the process. A second category that we see is illicit worship. We see this in the next two on the list: idolatry and sorcery. Sorcery is not that common. Uh, of a thought that we have in our minds. This is a common thread we actually have seen in Galatians so far, the, the context that he was in. There was a lot of people dealing with sorcery. I just want to point that out, but let's, let's look at those individually. Idolatry, we're, we're used to that kind of language. Idolatry is worshiping other gods besides the one true God, whether that be yourself and your own pleasures, or a physical idol in your room, or a god of another name from another religion. God, the only creator and sustainer of all that is, God alone is man's highest good. So, for us to pursue after anything less would ultimately leave us feeling lifeless, hopeless, empty. Do you ever feel that way? If you've achieved something you thought you've always wanted, do you ever feel lifeless or hopeless or empty? Chances are, at some point along the way, in your pursuit of happiness, you may have been chasing after a little g, God, rather than the one true God. There is no other God but one, the Father, Son, and Spirit. And our worship belongs to Him and Him alone, Because not only because of who He is, which alone by itself deserves all glory, honor, and praise because of His being, His goodness, who He is, and, and how He functions, but actually what He has done earns Him ought to come out of us, overflow in us in worship, that Jesus Christ will become a man, come down in our wickedness and in our flesh, take on human flesh, be tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. And then he went to the cross and died in our place. He's worthy to be worshiped. But not only did he die, he rose from the dead. How much more worthy of worship is he then? And not only did he rise from the dead, but he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he now rules and reigns, and he will be doing so for eternity until he puts all enemies under his feet. How much should we be ready and willing to worship our God? How's your worship been lately? Sorcery. Sorcery is divination or magic. It's not a fairy tale. This is real. This is what you could call unauthorized worship. I'm reading through Exodus right now uh, as I'm reading through the scriptures and I just passed the the part in Exodus where the magicians, they do the same exact thing that Moses and Aaron do with the staff, with the frogs, with the blood. They do the same exact thing, these magicians, these sorcerers, as the one true God did in front of Pharaoh. And now if you're a good Bible reader, you need to ask the question, how did they do that? How did they do that? Well, I would tell you that this is how they did it, sorcery, divination. It was a conjuring of of spiritual power of sorts. And and they were able to manipulate that power for their purposes, the purposes of of an anti-Christ type of mentality, showing people that there's power, but you don't need to go to God for it. You just need to go to the devil and sorcery, and you can figure it all out on your own. But the bottom line is that that's not God's power. So it's unauthorized. And I say this to tell you that there is a resurgence of sorcery these days. It goes by different names like New Age. There's there's a lot of cult practices in New Age. Wiccan, witchcraft, tarot card reading, psychic, all this stuff is sorcery. They promise spiritual experience. And let me tell you, if you go, you're probably going to get a spiritual experience, a real experience. But it's not from God. So stay away from it. It's unauthorized. Spirit-filled Christians are called to worship in spirit and in truth. This means we need to know the spirit of God. We need to know the truth. We know the spirit of God when we know the character of God. And we know the character of our God as we become more and more acquainted with the word of God that's revealed him to us. God's word tells us why God is to be worshipped. Because he's the Lord of all, the creator and sustainer of all that was and ever will be. But not just the why, it does also tell us the how he's to be worshipped. How is he to be worshipped? And with what means? Not with crystals or with shrines or with cards or symbolic pictures or psychic trances or hypnosis. Not with astrology. Not with horoscopes or to get away from the sorcery side. Not with animal sacrifices or anything like this. There was a time, think about it, the reason I bring up animal sacrifices is because There's a time in the scriptures, we know it, when God commanded his people to offer up a variety of animal sacrifices for a variety of reasons. But but since Jesus has come, Jesus being the perfect spotless lamb of God who was slain in our place, sacrificed once for all, we no longer make any sacrifices of animals to God. As Hebrews says, Jesus is the greater sacrifice once for all. There's no more of that. Therefore, it would be considered illicit worship if we were to offer animal sacrifices to him now, we don't do that. All that to say, you start getting involved with people that tell you you have to offer up some animal sacrifice, some rituals to worship, worship God, you can just say, no thanks. I don't want any of that. And then you can share the gospel with them. Because the gospel says you can have a relationship with God, you can know God, you can follow God, be filled with the Spirit, but you can only do so by faith in the Lord Jesus By repenting of your sins and trusting in him and what he's done for you on the cross in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. And now when he comes, he makes his place with you. He lives in you by the spirit. God dwells in us as his temple. There's nothing outside of us that we need to communicate with God because we have him. We communicate with him. We commune with him. And he has us. So my encouragement is don't go to some other medium or some other way. Just go to God. Through the lord jesus christ the only mediator third category breakdown in relationships breakdown in relationships this we see in the next eight on the list enmity strife jealousy fits of anger rivalries dissensions divisions and envy enmity these people they're always hostile toward others Strife, they they sit in their bitterness and it affects their relationships with other people. Jealousy, these people are not content with what they have, with what God has given to him. They want positions of power, they want prestige, they want more, more, more. Fits of anger, that can be a hot outburst or that can be a cold recession. But either way, you know it's a fit of anger when you see it. Rivalries, there's no pursuing compromise for these people. No pursuing understanding. They just pit others against themselves. They make themselves enemies. They make them enemies. They're on different teams. Now they're at odds against one another. Dissensions. These people at the sign of disagreement. They sow discord in the community. They hold the line without pursuing peace. Divisions. These people may even cut themselves off from community, dividing themselves away in rebellion to the community to show their frustration with their community, or they may band together with others who, who seemingly feel the same way and then create factions inside the church rather than pursuing unity. Envy, the last one. Enviness. People who work flesh in these ways, they're discontent. And they covet what other people have in their discontentment. And that fuels their actions, their desires, their comments. Even works of the flesh like this church aren't just on the outside. You don't always see it, but they are evident. They're on the inside. And sometimes you don't perceive these things until they boil over in a person's heart. Unchecked, unrestrained, it all just seems to come out at just that right time. The point, though, in this context is that a person who's given over to these things, like with the rest of the list, if this person is characterized by the works of the flesh, it would be hard to say that this person is a spirit-filled Christian. But even in, in, in this list, we can see the kind of character that the Spirit of God would produce in us by faith. We can become a people who pursue unity. We can be unified just like the Lord, even in his tri unity before the foundation of the world, eternally existent, three in one, he shares perfect communion with himself, Father, Son, Spirit, and he shares perfect communion with us through the sacrifice of the Son. We can have unity because of who God is. We can become a people who increasingly overlook offenses rather than hold on to offense, or worse even, respond with offense when we're offended hold the line, snap back, bite and devour one another. That's not the character of God. We can become more and more selfless as we celebrate others' successes, their victories, or we mourn with others in their failures and shortcomings. This is the character of God. We increasingly consider others more significant than ourselves, just like the Lord Jesus, leaving his throne in heaven, descending, becoming a servant, even to the point of death. What greater example of service than this, counting others more significant than yourselves? As we walk by the Spirit, we become peacemakers because this is our God who's made peace with us by the blood of Jesus on the cross and has made peace between us because of Jesus and the blood of Jesus on the cross, crucified for sinners like you and me. We are not united because we got a lot of things in common. We're united because we know Jesus Jesus knows us and loves us. You love him, I love him. This is what unites us. It's not what, what, what we, how we get along and the things that, that, we, that we agree on, whether it be political or, or with sports or whatever. None of those things are primary. Jesus is primary. Are these works of the flesh characteristic of your life? If you see some of these in your life, my encouragement, just go to Jesus. Just go to Jesus. Pray and ask him to clean you from these things. Your sin is not scary to Jesus. Jesus can cleanse every bit of your sin, every bit of unrighteousness, and by the Spirit, you can walk in God's ways because the Spirit is the one who produces God's character in you. So if you see any hint of this in your life, just go to Jesus. Ask him. Trust him. Number four, we see a category of excess. 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 I don't know how to say that. The final two on the list, drunkenness and orgies. To sum those up in one word, unrestraint. This is the unrestrained pursuit of personal pleasure. The opposite of the character of God, which we will see even more in the list of the fruit next week, self-control. Those who do works of the flesh are ultimately unrestrained. It's all about me, what I want, how I feel, what I want now, and I'm going to have what I want now, and I'm going to get it however I can get it. This kind of living is selfish. It is not characteristic of the child of God. This is the life characteristic of someone given over to the flesh. And if you're given over to the flesh, if you're given over to these kinds of works of the flesh, guess what? you are still bound in slavery to the present evil age. Walking in darkness, not knowing where you're going because you are blinded to that darkness in your sin. These things that seem good in the moment, it seems good to let all the steam off at one moment. It seems good to go after what you want and not what the other person wants. It seems good to satisfy your own cravings, what your flesh desires, but they might seem good in the moment. But those things that seem good in the moment will catch you in a snare. And they will take your life. They are unfulfilling, they're dissatisfying, they're enslaving. And for those who make a practice of the works of the flesh, the only hope is Jesus. What is promising you satisfaction other than the God who created you? Let me encourage you that God, the creator, this is really interesting to think about. God, who knitted you together in your mother's womb, gave you a heart And he knows the depths of your heart because he's the one who made it. He made you completely, exactly how you are and he knows every single detail about you, about how you think, about how you feel, about what you want, the depths of the desires of the heart and what it is that's really driving them. God knows everything about you. And get this, he alone knows how to satisfy Every single desire. You see these works of the flesh. They're all temporary pleasures. But God created you in his image. And as an image bearer, he alone is the one who can fulfill you now and forever. So go to him. And then we get to the end of the verse. And things like these. (laughs) Couldn't finish the list. So he puts, and things like these things. This, again, just shows us that Paul's point is not meant to be exhaustive. He's not trying to make an exhaustive list of works of the flesh. But what he is trying to do is he's trying to show you the characteristics of a life that is enslaved to the works of the flesh and what that looks like in Christian community, always seeking to fulfill your own desire of your own flesh. This is not an exhaustive list. And that's what we're going to see next week. This is really interesting. The fruit of the Spirit is not an exhaustive list. That's not Paul's point. His point, again, is to show the utter opposition of the two. If you walk in one, you don't walk in the other. If you walk in this, you don't walk in that. That leads us to the second point, our second half of our time. The warning about God's kingdom, verse 21. He says this, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things... Will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says, I warn you as I warned you before. That means he's told them once. Now he's telling them again. And we need multiple warnings every once in a while, don't we? We need that, that warning this morning. Sometimes we might even need the second or the third or the fourth warning we see in this text. This warning shows us a bit about God's character. God's character in that he would even give us a warning. We see God's grace on full display that he would make the warning clear. We see God's mercy and willingness to forgive us in the fact that he would warn us away from wickedness and to his son. You're driving full throttle down the highway of life and sign after sign after sign, warning you, warning you, warning you. Slow down, slow down, stop ahead, wrong way, wrong way. Every warning that God gives you, is the grace of God to you. And it's not always promised. So if you see it, you must heed the warning. But what's the warning for? He says this, those who do such things, that's this list and things like it, those who do such things, works of the flesh, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is to say, there are eternal repercussions for the decisions that you're making, how you're choosing to live right now and who you're choosing to put your trust in. Paul is saying here, the works are evident. Those who do such things, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, whether you work for the government or work for Chick-fil-A. It doesn't matter if you're old or you're young. It doesn't matter who you know. It doesn't matter who your pastor is. It doesn't matter whether or not your mom and dad are Christians or you've been to church your entire life. What matters is what is your life characterized by today because what your life looks like says a lot about whether or not you've really been with Jesus. Whether or not you really know Him, whether or not you really love Him, whether or not you're really filled by His Spirit, what your life looks now today, says a lot about what you're going to get in the end. The question comes down to whether or not you will inherit the kingdom of God. Whether or not you will receive, big word, eschatological salvation. That is salvation in the very end, on the very last day. Are you going to be saved at the end And will you inherit the kingdom then? Two questions I think need to be answered here. One, what is the kingdom of God? Why does Paul bring that up right here? Well, if we're being specific, we're just looking in Galatians. We're not looking at the rest of the Bible. We're looking specifically at the text. The kingdom of God is an inheritance. It's an inheritance of a kingdom from God. It's something that is coming in the future when Christ consummates his kingdom, when he returns from the throne to which he ascended, and he comes back to rule and to reign personally for all eternity here. Knowing the kingdom of God is an inheritance is really important for the context of Galatians because Paul has spent a lot of time walking through who are the children of God, those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus and have subsequently been sealed with the Spirit. Because the children of God are the heirs of God. And there in, in verse 21, we can see that the heirs of God will be inheriting the kingdom of God. Now we know this from elsewhere in scripture that ultimately this refers to the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. That's not yet been consummated by Christ in his second coming when Jesus returns and makes all things new. But dial it back a little bit with me. Because I think Paul is making a point for the church today. Galatians, that day, for us, today. It's important not to miss what we've also seen in Galatians, that we are in between ages. We are in what's called the already, but the not yet. Currently, we are in the church age, or you can call it the age of the spirit, where the kingdom has already come. It has already come in part. The kingdom of God was inaugurated when Jesus Christ came. Matthew's gospel uses kingdom of God language over and over and over again, but but it's not yet been consummated, meaning it hasn't been brought to completion yet. That is to say, and I think Paul is saying here, believers in Christ who are sealed by the Spirit get a taste of the kingdom of God right now as we wait for the kingdom of God to come in its fullness. We get a taste. The taste of the kingdom, I think in this context, is the production of the fruit of the Spirit in the life of the believer. The Spirit of God producing God's character in God's child today, not then, but today. So today we can love the Lord with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Today, we can love our neighbor as ourselves. Today, we can live like Jesus. We can speak like Jesus, walk like Jesus. And this is just a taste of what is going to come when we see Jesus face to face. But then the big question comes is, who's the we? Who gets to taste? Who gets to see Jesus? Number two, who's the kingdom of God for? Well, God's kingdom is for God's children. The heirs with Christ, according to the promise of Chapter 3, 29. It's for the children of God. Chapter 4, 7. And how do you know if someone is a child of God? They look like God. We will look specifically at the fruit of the Spirit next week. But even in contrast to the works of the flesh this morning. We've seen what God's character looks like. And Paul is saying, those who who do not manifest, they don't don't reveal the character of God, those who are not sealed by the Spirit, which which is evident because of the fruit in their life, what they do, they do not inherit the kingdom of God. So the final question we must ask from this text this morning, is your life characterized by works of the flesh? The main warning that I think that we see here in the text, because of the opposition of the two, the main warning that I think we see is actually for a non-Christian. Because these are the characteristics of a life lived for self, a life lived in slavery, for personal pleasure, rather than a life lived for God. And we all, at some point or another, even in this room, were there, indulging the flesh Doing things that we wanted to do, when we wanted to do it, how we wanted to do it. Indulging the flesh, just like the scriptures tell us that we did. Separated from Christ. But if you are here, if you're not a Christian, I just want to tell you, we're glad. We're so glad that you're here. Kids, I'm so thankful that you gather with us every day. Coming to church doesn't make you a Christian. Just because your parents are Christians doesn't make you a Christian. If you aren't a Christian, you've heard the warning this morning. You must heed the warning. That God is a gracious God and he's merciful and he's slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And it is a gift that you can hear that warning every single Sunday. Kids, it's a gift that you can hear the warning from God's word every single Sunday. So listen to the warning when you hear it. Today, the scripture says, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart against him. Don't harden your heart and turn away from God and not listen to God listen, maybe you're here and you see some of these things in your life and you don't want your life to be characterized this way anymore. You want freedom. Well, friend, Jesus can give you that freedom. You go to any other world religion, Muhammad, Buddha, Krishna, Vishnu, you go to all these other world religions and alike, they all make big promises that they cannot fulfill. Only Jesus is the one who can make a promise that he has the power and the authority to fulfill. He can promise freedom, and then he can give you freedom from every struggle that you face. If you see that in your life, even you kids, if you see in your life that, that, that you desire to be close to God, you don't want to be involved in all of this stuff, you want to be near him, Even that, Jesus would look at you and he would say, hey, you're close to the kingdom of God. Well, you don't want to just be close. You want to be in it. You want to be a part of it. So how do you get in the kingdom of God? How do you you receive the kingdom of God that only Jesus can offer? If you're just so close and you're just so close to tasting it and you want it, how do you get there? You heed the warning and you give your life to Jesus. Give it to him without apology. Just give it to him, Lord Jesus. Take my life. I submit to you. You're the leader. You're my Lord. I want to live my life for you. Come to Jesus and be forgiven of your sin. Come to Jesus and he can clean all the darkness and ickiness in your heart and make you new. All these bad works of the flesh, he can just wash them right away. Your slate will be completely clean, white as snow, because Jesus' crimson blood paid for every single one of those sins and he rose from the dead to even give little kids life to even give adults life, even give people on their deathbed life because Jesus has the power and authority to do that. There's no mess in a person's life that Jesus can't fix or redeem even yours. And I want you to take that with you when you have interactions with non-Christians. You may see a lot of mess, but there's no mess in anybody's life if you step into that mess that Jesus cannot clean. Share that kind of hope with somebody. Because that's what people need to hear. The second warning, I think, you can see in this text, I think it's implied, is for the person who claims to know Jesus, but they find these things to just be characteristic of their life in one way or another. Actually, not even... Convicted about these things. They just give their life over to it, but they claim the name of Jesus when they speak. The application for that kind of person is the same application. Repent and come to Jesus afresh. Maybe you didn't really come to Him the first time. Maybe you need to actually come to Him. And it's the grace of God that you're recognizing this today in your heart. So don't put it off for another moment. Don't indulge in those sins one more time. They're not going to satisfy you, they're not going to fulfill you. Don't believe the lie that you are without hope because Jesus is your hope. Jesus is your hope. Repent and come to him. And when you do, this time around, don't depend on your own strength. Don't depend on your own abilities or perceived self-control because it didn't get you real far before. You weren't strong enough then to fight those battles for the first time, and you're not going to be strong enough to do it now. Ask the Holy Spirit to do in your life what the Holy Spirit does to empower you, To walk in his paths, produce in you the fruit of God's character, not only for your sake. What's the context? But for the sake of everybody around you, your community. The third warning I think you could pull from the context is that these works are not at all characteristic of a spirit-filled child of God, of a believer in Christ. Not any one of these things is a characteristic of someone who claims Jesus and actually has the Spirit of God living in them by faith. We are called to be live set apart. We're called to look different, to sound different, to be different. We're called to live holy lives, to walk by the Holy Spirit who is opposed to these things, the utter opposite direction of these things. And the promise is if we walk by the Spirit, we won't do these things. So church... How could we, why would we for one moment in any way whatsoever give ourselves over back to the variety of ways in which we used to be enslaved? We're free. You don't got to walk in those same sin patterns. Even if you just became a Christian today, you would not have to do what you were doing yesterday by the power of the Holy Spirit because Jesus actually cleanses us from our sin and makes us new the old man actually dies with Christ that's what baptism symbolizes we die with him when we're risen to new life in him you have a new life walk in your new life what lies have any of you been believing that that have been enticing you to leave room even for these kinds of sins now you might say Caleb I do not indulge in things like this well praise God praise God because you can't do that by your own strength Praise the Lord. And we shouldn't indulge in these kind of things. But but listen, heed the warning that these things aren't always on the outside. These things are also on the inside. And even with the Spirit, we still face temptations to sin. So my encouragement to you is to keep watch on yourself and keep watch on others in your community, in the church. Watch out for the small compromises that you might find yourself making. I know sometimes it becomes easy to, to live with that where's the line mentality. Where, where, where's the, the line? I know a lot of people who live this way. Oh, oh there's the line. So, so I know I'm not supposed to cross that line, so I'm not going to cross it. But what happens when we live like that is we inevitably find ourselves creeping. We're just creeping closer and closer over time to that line, to as close as the line as possible. And this is what Paul is arguing against, that kind of living. Lawless living, that is slavery. If you think you're just going to walk closer, you're enslaved to your sin. The desires of your sin, you are enslaved. You're acting like you're still enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil, creeping up on that line. Paul says elsewhere of a similar sin list that these things shouldn't even be named among you, church. That means there's no creeping up to that line. There's nothing to do with that line. You're in the opposite direction. The Spirit opposes. So forget looking at that line. Look at Jesus. Behold, one, puts it, but one person puts it this way. I forget who it is. He says, you, you become what you behold. So spend all your time beholding Jesus, worshiping Jesus, loving Jesus, and he's going to create in you by his spirit that desire and the fruit of that desire to walk like him in the spirit by his power and his ways. If you walk by the spirit, you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. It's the promise of the text. God calls us to freedom in the spirit from these works of the flesh and things like these anything like that the point of it of the saying things like these is so we don't create lists for do's and don'ts anybody ever created a list out of this i know i'm guilty of this things i should avoid in life but you know what that inevitably does is it has my mind set on those things my mind does not need to be set on those things my mind needs to be set on jesus But the problem with making a list out of this is the list could go on and on and on and on for, for as long and as far as the depth of the wickedness and depravity that is the human heart. Paul says it's a shame even to talk about some of the depths of wickedness that people get involved with. So the answer is never a list. It's never a don't, 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 don't. You're just trying to re re reinvent the wheel, so to speak. You're trying to reinvent the law. It doesn't look like the law, the Ten Commandments, but it's your own created law of things not to do. Don't create a list because no list has any power to help you. The answer, as we talked about last week, is filling your time with prayer, filling your mind with the word, filling your life with obedience, walking by the Spirit, eyes on Jesus. That's the answer. If you are a Christian, hear me when I say this. Passivity is not the answer to putting to death the works of the flesh. Avoidance is not how you overcome the works of the flesh. The moment you recognize that you've sinned in one of these ways or like one of these ways, you're called to repent right then and there. Confess your sin to God be cleansed of it and walk in the forgiveness that only Christ Jesus can give. That is God's grace to you that you can see the sin in your life. If you see your sin, don't hide it away from God. Don't push it off to the side. Don't let it go. Don't try to forget about it. If you do that over time, you put them in the shadows. They will grow and grow and grow until you get to the point where you're sinning in ways that you never imagined you would sin. John Owen in his book Mortification of Sin says this. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And that is a promise because those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will inherit eternal death. The wrath of God against sin and all ungodliness. Ensure that you will receive the inheritance by putting your trust in Christ. If you Have put your trust in Christ. Continue abiding with him by walking by the Spirit. And as you walk by the Spirit, he will produce God's character in you. That is a promise because his desires are opposed to the flesh, making you look more and more like Jesus every single step. It is the children of God who will inherit the kingdom. And children of God look like their father. So let's pray.